Welcome to Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. I am Dr. Carla O'Dell, CEO of APQC, and in this series, I get to interview some of the most interesting people in the world. Today, I'm going to be talking to Robert Buckman, who's going to give us a unique CEO perspective on knowledge sharing. Let me give you a little bit of background on Bob. Bob served as the chairman and CEO of Bulab Holdings, which was the parent company of Buckman Laboratories, and he served in that role for 22 years until he retired in 2000. Now, Bob was one of the earliest adopters and proponents of what we have come to call knowledge management. In fact, we met Bob, we, the APQC, met Bob at our first knowledge management conference in 1995. And the company he ran, Buckman Laboratories, was a family business created in 1945 that was to research, develop, and market chemical products for use in the pulp and paper, industrial water treatment, and leather industries. But Bob said that the company's success stemmed from the, quote, great knowledge base that resides in the heads of our associates, our employees. So Bob's law, when he became a proponent of knowledge management in that period, no one else was doing that. So I'd like to start with some questions around that, Bob. First of all, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Carla. So you were the first CEO to even think about harnessing the power of the Internet to connect your employees with each other and with headquarters and staff. This was not common. There were no ISPs. People didn't have mobile devices. My goodness. Uh, that was even before Amazon had opened its doors, digitally speaking. So my question is, whatever gave you the idea in the first place that your employees could use the Internet to share knowledge? Well, first of all, it started with me attending a conference put on by IBM in their San Jose operation in 1967. Uh, and there I heard one of the presenters mentioned that in the future we would spend more money sharing data and knowledge than we would on hardware and software. That intrigued me as a concept, and I always remembered it. And so in the mid-'70s, when we started seeing uh, IBM move in this direction and we started having PCs, uh, and desktops in particular. Then the early laptops came out. IBM had one that weighed 17 pounds. I actually carried that on a trip one time and decided that was not very practical. Um, and then in 1989, we gave all of our uh, associates laptops and these were typically Zenith Super Sports and we piggybacked on IBM's global network at that time. Uh, this was before the internet. Um, we, it was rather cumbersome. You had to have one phone call to get an email and another phone call to check into your databases at the home office on the mainframe. But it worked. Uh, and we did that until we made contact with CompuServe and they started talking about the Internet and using the Internet. And it was interesting to me that particularly today when we talk about cloud computing, 
CompuServe was doing cloud computing back in the early 90s. In fact, they talked about uh, connecting up with the cloud. So the concept and the, even the words were used way back uh, in the very early days. The, I, you know, at one point, even before the Internet came along, uh, we were using a mainframe to try and create an intranet using IBM's connectivity to our servers. That was extremely slow. Even though we called it fast path, it was... Uh, it was a very, very slow process, and it was very hard to make changes. So when the Internet came along and we could connect through the Internet, uh, that was like opening a big window of opportunity for us. Well, Bob, given, given that it wasn't that easy to do, what was the business driver that was keeping you propelling and to keep using this? I mean, I remember you were probably using 300 baud modems in the early days. Well, that's, that's probably true. We we shared a lot of knowledge at about 900 baud uh, at that time, and uh, everybody said, well, that's awful damn slow, and it was. But it was faster than telex machine, and each individual had their own uh, connectivity. So for, for us, it was the beginning of mobility. Yes. What? Whatever made, what was the business driver? Why was this so important to you? I mean, you're an early adopter, so I know you had a personal interest in it, but from a Buckman Laboratories perspective, you really thought it was worth trying. Well, before we gave everybody computers and connected them to a network, we used to run PhDs around the world, picking up knowledge at each stop and then sharing their knowledge at each stop along the ways to try and keep our uh, people who worked with paper mills and other industries up to date on the current knowledge. Well, then the paper industry, instead of having 50 suppliers on the wet end of a paper machine, they cut it to five. Well, to be a survivor, you had to pick up more knowledge on more things and provide more stuff to that industry that company if you wanted to be a player. Eventually, this dropped down to two suppliers for the wedding of the machine, and then eventually dropped down to single source supplying, which is kind of the concept today. And in the process, they eliminated many of their technical staff, and so they looked to the supplier, who was their single source supplier, to be their technical staff also. So to perform that in that environment, we had to move knowledge, and we had to stay current on what was the best way to do things. So that was the real driver. And by putting in these systems for sharing knowledge, uh, we were able to compete with companies easily five times our size on a global basis. God. That is, so that is that, amazing. I was driver. That is amazing. That drive to be the single source. It's like they were outsourcing all of their knowledge oh. and capability to you, to whoever could do it all, and you had to be able to do it. That's correct. Everything, 
Exactly. And this, this process occurred over several years or it evolved over several years. And so you had a little time to kind of get ready for it and do it, but uh, the pressure was there to pick up a lot of different knowledge and be able to move it on a global basis in, you know, providing solution to customer problems. Is that why solutions and uh, innovations became such a key measure for you? Say something about that because you were trying to, I well, speed, you know, speed is what drives companies today. And I remember you talking about it was trying to reduce the cycle time of knowledge and innovation and solutions that was driving you, and that was 20 years ago. That's correct. Um, let me see if I can describe why. Uh, in a paper machine, you may have a, a – the paper is formed on a wire mesh that's an endless belt, and uh, this machine may be moving at 3,000 feet a minute, and uh, it's, you know, 20 to 30 feet wide. So this is a big machine. And you're producing a lot of paper real fast, or you're producing a lot of broke real fast. Mm -hmm. And when one of those machines is in trouble for whatever reason and you're not producing the quality paper that they want, it becomes very time sensitive to be able to solve those problems. And you have to be able to do that on a global basis. Mm -hmm. So... That's where that was the economic push uh, and the knowledge push that pushed us in the direction of trying to connect everybody together. And we learned that uh, the expert knowledge wasn't necessarily in the heads of our experts. It was anywhere at any time somebody had the latest and best knowledge on how to solve a particular problem. So uh, it kind of upended the whole concept of having knowledge experts uh, because the knowledge expert could be anybody at any time. So this, this whole movement towards a networked organization was economically driven by the needs of our customers. So you know what I'm hearing in this, and I want to come back to this knowledge networks uh, in a second, but a little-known fact about me, Bob, which you may know, is that before I came to APQC, I worked in a warehouser pulp and paper mill, so I know oh. about bro I know about broke. And oh, okay, well, you know why expensive it is to produce broke then. That's right. That's not, not something you want to do. And then uh, also in a plywood mill where I learned about how you get formaldehyde out of your clothes at the end of the day. But that's another story. <laughs> Uh, but we work so much now with other big continuous process industries like oil and gas, and sure. they the same thing where your this capital equipment is got it can produce bad stuff or good stuff, but it's going to do all of it really fast. And the solution uh, has to be uh, right now, right now. And so this uh, that just makes so much sense to me that that's what was driving you. Now let's go back to this wonderful point you make about. Experts could be anywhere, and in this day and age of 
social media and crowdsourcing and so on, other people are beginning to see this same uh, issue. So talk to us about kind of how you see that knowledge network and expertise. Well, first of all, most of our people who worked with our customers were engineers or chemists or microbiologists, so they were highly trained anyway. And, you know, they all had knowledge, and the guy sitting in front of the customer is the guy that usually has the best local knowledge of what's going on. And so when we got the network set up, we started using the concept of open space meetings to share knowledge. And that concept is can be described very simply. Whoever raises an issue starts the meeting by raising a question or an issue. Whoever comes around the issue is the people who need to be there at that point in time. And the conversation continues until the person who raised the issue is satisfied he's got the answer he needs, and then it stops. And you move on to something else. Mm-hmm. So it's that concept that we used uh, or to to share knowledge, and it was extremely useful. And it, it let everybody know that anybody could be the expert. You know, I want to let our listeners and readers know that open space technology, our methodology that you're describing is one that people use a lot in um, community groups, too, where any member of the community can raise a question, and then whoever shows up to help discuss or answer it are the right people. By definition, whoever shows up is right, and when it's over, it's over, and you can move on. That's right. It's a powerful uh, inclusion technique. I'm really impressed that you've been using it that long. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it it became uh, pretty obvious pretty quickly that this was one of the essential elements uh, moving from command and control structure to more of a networked approach. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that, the culture of knowledge sharing from command and control to network? What does that, what's that transition well, look like? It's messy. <laughs> yeah. At best. Um First of all, uh, you have to start by defining what, how do you build trust at an organization. You see, we had people speaking 14 different languages. Uh, they had, uh, you know, they, they were communicating with people they'd never met face-to-face. And so we had to develop a culture of trust that bridged those gaps. And we did it by a very simple technique. And this is where uh, Tom Peters and his group was helpful to us in how to do that, uh, and particularly Dr. Ruben Harris, who was head of research for Tom Peters' group at that time. And basically what we did was... Um, we just asked everybody to put down the five most important elements that had to be there for you to share knowledge with some people in the organization. 
that you'd never met. And we did that with every group and every uh, company. And we brought that together, and eventually we boiled it down into a global set of values and principles that uh, we inculcated or, you know, uh, put into our global um, code of ethics. And that became the foundation for how we operated the network. And anybody could contribute, you know, anything to the network as long as it didn't violate the code of ethics. And if they did, we could actually pull them off the network. And so that started building that whole culture of trust. And basically we said as long as it doesn't violate the code of ethics, anything goes. That's, I remember yeah. when I first met you, you gave me a little wallet card that had some of those values and, and code of ethics on it. So I guess that's, every employee had that. That's correct. Uh, and... That is what I see missing in most KM operations today. They don't go through the effort to build that value system for sharing knowledge mm -hmm. where everybody gets comfortable buying into the values. Mm -hmm. And you're saying the technique that you guys use for that, because sometimes people don't do it because they don't know how to do it. The technique you did was you invited every employee, and these probably were some face-to-face -face meetings around the globe, to share what was important to them. So when the final set of principles came out, I'm guessing that every employee could say, I see myself in that. They asked me. That's correct. Yeah. That's yeah. a powerful technique that, uh, that I think smart companies do try to use, but it's, it's very labor-intensive and takes time and can be a little frightening to executives if we're not sure what they're going to end up with. Oh, it was uh, it was very frightening to some of our executives. It uh, it you know it took a little persistence in the beginning, but as we pulled it together, it became obvious that these were values that everybody could buy into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other interesting thing is the values then determined, you know, the surest way to get fired was to start violating their code of ethics. And it also became the foundation on which how we looked at people when we went to hire them. Oh, those are uh, powerful messages, signals you're sending to the organization, both of those. That's correct. So that was all part of building the culture of sharing knowledge. So you, had a, you had a unique perspective or ability to make this happen because you were the chairman and CEO. What advice would you give about to knowledge managers to apply this on a smaller scale? Let's say that I'm the knowledge management uh, leader for uh, an R&D organization. What tips would you give to me? Well, take the time to build uh, that list of values that are important for sharing knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know, take the time to do that because once you do that with the people, then they get comfortable that, well, it's okay to share this knowledge with people I've never met. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they will never feel comfortable in the network. 
Yeah, makes perfect sense. I'd like to go back to something you said earlier uh, before you were, uh, that you said most of the, your people that were out in the field customer facing were already technically savvy people. They were chemists or microbiologists and they, in addition to that technical knowledge, they also had the local knowledge of the customer. So you could be pretty certain that if you op one of them opened a question to their peers and colleagues in the world, that it was going to be answered by technically competent people. One of the concerns people have when you crowdsource the answer to a technical question or a complex one is whether the people answering it are really giving you are really qualified to answer it. Have you got any thoughts on that dilemma? Um, you know, first of all, these networks are equally open to the quote-unquote designated experts, and they're perfectly free to participate in any of these discussions also. So, you know, uh, I, I have a little bit of a problem with experts who say, you've got to come to me for the answer. You can't listen to anybody else mm -hmm. uh, because that then becomes an ego trip. Bob, when you try to apply these techniques around the world or in other contexts, you know, for creating trust and asking people what values or what needs to be in to share knowledge, what what do you notice? Well, we we tested this uh, not only within our own organization, but to make sure it wasn't organizationally uh, unique, we also tested it in conferences and master classes around the world. And this concept of asking what are the elements that have to be there to share knowledge with people you've never met turn out to be the same almost no matter what the culture is that it comes from because we did it in Korea and China, Australia, England, and Austria. So they are unique, very fundamental values that uh, every society buys into. And if you buy into those in your uh, value system that you put together around your network, then you won't have any problems going across cultures or languages. That's, that is wonderful. Do you, can you tell us what some of those values are? Uh, treat everybody with dignity and respect. Mm -hmm. And anybody can, uh, if you go back to our code of ethics, you know, the first four or five values on there are right directly from that process. Okay. Well, we'll add those into our transcript here uh, so that our, because I know our listeners and readers are going to want to see those again. So I think we actually have them in the APQC knowledge base, but I'm going to uh, make sure that we add those back in right here. Do you, um, what is your opinion then of all the new use of social media, such as Yammer and Wikis? Uh, compared to, you know, all the other classical approaches. Uh, they certainly, these social media approaches certainly do allow everybody to speak up. What's, any any observations about this? Um, well, a couple. 
first of all, social media is important. In fact, uh, when we built our systems, we had a place using the same technology and exactly the same, you know, within the forum itself, a little spot called the electronic break room. And where, as long as the code of ethics wasn't violated, they could sell cats and dogs, tell jokes, or whatever they wanted to do in there. And we found that the sharing of trivial stuff across time and space and across cultures builds the confidence level in the people to then share substantive stuff around the business needs. Uh, and it was a very important element to have there. And the more you used or could use the same software, just compartmentalized off, you know, uh, I've heard it called Billy's Porch. I've heard it called any number of things. But that concept of having a social spot where anybody could share anything, um, uh, it's very important if you want real substantive stuff shared over the network. So you're saying we are we're total holistic human beings. We're not compartmentalized. That's correct. Uh, you know, when you first meet somebody, you don't start sharing your deepest knowledge with them. Uh, you talk about the weather or the baseball game or whatever. And you gradually get to know the individual, and particularly if you have a couple of drinks, you might get to know them quicker. And then you're more willing to talk about really serious stuff. That same process exists in networks. Yeah. You know what? I hadn't thought about this before, but that sense of trust that you're building inside your organization probably... Um, bleeds over, as it were, into, into your employees' personal lives, and then it also probably influences your customers. Did you ever have any of your pulp and paper or, or leather or, or water treatment customers ever say, hey, we'd like some of that culture. We'd like some of that knowledge sharing. Well, I had uh, the CEO of Nalco Chemical, which was one of our biggest competitors, Asked the same thing, and, uh, and I actually went and talked to their top executives at, in the Nalco offices, and all of our people kept telling me, don't do that, don't do that, don't tell them a thing. And, but I went ahead and did it, and I learned one thing. The amount they were spending on knowledge systems and computers, I knew they could never catch us. So uh, that was a very useful device to learn that. Simple. So that was competitive intelligence on your part. What year was that approximately? That oh, that God. That had to be early 90s sometime. Oh, gosh. That was a different century. Did you know yeah. NALCO has, uh, is a very active member of APQC in our knowledge management networks? I think they Oh, I, I, I know that. <laughs> but it was very interesting that they, they were very interested in what we were doing. Oh, that's terrific. What a great anecdote, Bob. Yeah. What, you know, uh, I run into people, you know, you and I have both been, I certainly don't have your your history, but you and I have both been doing this knowledge management stuff for a long time, and 
uh, I run into, so it's been around, and I run into people who find themselves in the role of trying to restart a knowledge management program in their company that got derailed because, uh, I don't know, too much, you know, high expectations were set for technology and the technology mm-hmm. didn't deliver because they didn't do the people part. And they're in a position, that's usually the case, and they're in a position where they're trying to restart it. Have you got any advice for those people, Bob? Oh, yeah, I, I see that all the time. I see too many companies that have thrown real expensive technology at the problem and hoping that'll solve their cultural problems, and it doesn't. Uh, you have to kind of go back to how do you build communities? How do you build networks? How do you build trust across a network? And so I'd go back to that basic uh, approach of uh, determining what are the value principles that have to be there to share knowledge, and because that helps people buy in. Bob, I think that's absolutely right. It feels right that that those foundational uh, yeah, it, and that interaction is all. I see right too. To I, I see just too many companies trying to bypass that that grunt work on the beginning to build the the value system of the organization. Or they try and promulgate it from on high, you know, through something they put on the wall, but nobody's gone through the process of buying into it. Well, you know, one of my deep beliefs is that people support what they help create. That's correct. That is correct. And I think you've probably helped create maybe more than anybody else, the whole field of knowledge management and gave it credibility by being the CEO and being so vocal about it. I personally, uh, and on behalf of APQC, want to thank you for that. You've also served us for 20 years on our board of directors, and that has been a gift that we cannot repay. So that's probably all the time we have today, Bob, but this has been a terrific interview. I did not know some of this background. The need for speed, you know, that drove you and Buckman early on and the uh, is still alive and is driving us today in virtually everything we do. It's so interesting to see that all of these concepts were alive and driving us 25 years ago, too. So, go ahead. Hey, Pete, got a minute. I want to add one thing. Uh, you know, I, I talked about how that evolved and uh where we became sole source suppliers to paper companies. Now we're working with folks like Voight, who's helping them put together machines to build certain types of paper. And it's a whole different relationship than it used to be. So it's, you know, it's it's interesting that the chemical suppliers and the uh, equipment suppliers are working hand in glove now to produce results. I think it's this uh, again going back to the connectivity that we are now experiencing. We're one planet, and everything we're doing, people are discovering that we're connected to things, and we can we can work together in ways we never could before. It's, I think it's I think it's a good thing. It has its dark side, but it has such oh, positive yeah. outcomes. Yeah, it it definitely produces outcomes that you couldn't do otherwise. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank 
Bob Buckman again for a terrific interview and for joining us on Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. And if you would like to learn more about APQC and the other big thinkers and big ideas we know, please go to our website, www.apqc.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.